you turn to John chapter 11, we're going to read verses 38 to 44. We went through John 11 last week, not in entirety, but I wanted to spend a little bit more time in John chapter 11 this morning. John 11, verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an order, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When I said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we want to lift up our voices to you this morning and ask that you would please speak to us. God, it is not my words that matter. It is your words. My words mean nothing, are unprofitable. They are vain. But your words are profitable. They may be profitable unto salvation. Profitable for our encouragement, for our strengthening. So we pray that you would speak to us this morning about who you are, about your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to glorify God? What does the glory of God actually mean? We've heard statements like that before. We have said those statements ourselves. We give glory to God. We live for the glory of God. But what are we actually saying when we say those things? What does it actually mean to live for the glory of God or to give God glory? And this is, this is something central to the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Because back in the beginning of John chapter 11, when upon hear, Jesus' hearing of Lazarus' illness, he says this illness does not lead to death, but it will lead to the glory of God. And then when Jesus commands the stone to be removed, opening the tomb of the dead man, and Martha questions that command, Jesus responds by saying, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So clearly the glory of God matters to Jesus. In fact, it almost seems like the glory of God is setting aside man's well-being. In this case, Lazarus' current situation, that is, that he was dead. And also Martha and Mary, who are suffering the loss of their dear beloved brother. 
But from the very beginning, Jesus had his, set, his eyes set on the glory of God. And up until the end of it, he had his, set, his eyes set on the glory of God. So is, is the glory of God not concerned all that much with your well-being and mine? Are we called to kind of set aside our personal well-being in order for God to receive the maximum glory that he should have? So then, I want to spend some time talking about the glory of God because this is central to the passage. Right? One of the reasons that we re- one of the things that we wrestled with last week was, you know, why did Jesus allow Lazarus to die? We saw that it was for the glory of God. Well, then, what exactly does that mean? So I want to spend some time talking about the glory of God because it's in the passage because it seems to be really important to Jesus, and I think it's also important to the Bible itself. So what I want to do is very briefly kind of trace this theme of the glory of God in the scriptures from the Old Testament into the New, and also see, is the glory of God concerned with our well-being? How do those things work together, if they do? So then, beginning with the Old Testament, the glory of God is there in the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I get that there's nothing there about the glory of God in that passage. In fact, if you continue through the creation account, there's nothing there about the glory of God. It doesn't even say, I think, the word glory there. But this is when other scriptures are helpful, particularly Psalm 104, because Psalm... This particular psalm provides sort of a a commentary on Genesis chapter 1. Now, in Psalm 104, this is 35 verses long, and I want to just read verses 1 and verse 35, but sandwiched in between these two bookends is talking about the creation account. It's talking about uh, the heavens, the mountains, the seas, the animals that are created by God. And so Psalm 104 begins by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. And then in verse 35, the end of the psalm, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So it begins with the blessing and the praising of God and it ends with the praising of God. And so what it tells us is that that the creation account is reasons for praising God. So the psalmist is praising God for his creation account or for creating all things, the heavens and the earth. And then in Revelation 4.9, we need something a little more explicit. We're actually picking up in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 4. It says about the 24 elders bowing down before the throne room of God. And it says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For or because you created all things, and by your will they existed and we were created. So the creation was for the glory of God. The psalmist knew this. John the Apostle, he receives this revelation into the heavens as he sees these elders worshiping God in the throne room. He sees this, he hears this, that they are worshiping God because he created all things. So certainly the glory of God is there in the creation. 
So then fast forward a little bit more to the biblical storyline in the Exodus. Now, the Exodus event is the most monumental event in biblical history after the ministry of Jesus on earth and the Acts of the Apostles. But in this, in this event, right, we have kind of a, a showdown between two sovereigns, between Pharaoh, who is the mightiest man in all the earth, and then we have the God of all creation. And the Lord, through the mouth of Moses, says this in Exodus 9.13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Right? This is the God of creation, the God who has been prolonging this deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt by bringing plague upon plague upon the people of Egypt. And he says that he could have just simply snuffed them out at an instant with a snap of his fingers. He could have just done so but he doesn't do that. Why? In order to display his power so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He wants the entire world to know that there is a God and that he is certainly much more powerful than Pharaoh and that he is the one who provides this deliverance for his people. He wants his name to be proclaimed. So God is after his own glory. Then fast forward a little bit more and the giving of the law to the people of God. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and some of you are familiar with this passage, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law, he cites that passage shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. So how do we see the glory of God in that passage? Well, that command summons its hearers to place God first in their lives. That, that God deserves all of our affection. That we are called to love him with everything that we are, with every fiber of our being, that he is supposed to be first. That there are not supposed to be any competing affections, no competing gods, no competing things, no competing people in our hearts. It's not to say that you are not, that you cannot love other people, but they cannot take first priority in your heart. And so God is bringing, aiming to bring glory to himself through each and every person. And they're giving their all to worship the Lord, and to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then fast forward some more. The exile. Right, Jesus, God has said that he will be the God of his people, and that his people will be his, and that they continue to walk in obedience. If they will not put any gods before him, then he will bless them and keep them and provide for them. But if they would not remain faithful to the Lord, well, then he would bring curses upon them, and he will drive them out of the land that he has been so graciously to provide for them. 
And that's exactly what happened in the exile, that God brings these sovereign rulers to subdue his people and exile them out of the promised land. And so where is the glory of God during that exile? In Isaiah 48, the Lord says, For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So rather, God knows that his people will be a treacherous people that they will rebel against him. And yet, he doesn't just cut them off, which he certainly could have done. Instead, he keeps them. He remains faithful to them. Why? Because he is a faithful God. Because he wants his name to be proclaimed. Because he wants them and people to know that God is one who remains faithful to his covenant promises. And if they are to be rescued, it's not going to come through anyone else's hand. It's going to come through God so that he may be worshipped, so that he may be glorified because he is worthy of all the glory. So then, the New Testament, the glory of God runs deep through the Gospels. And we also see that especially in the Gospel of John. And some of these passages we've been through before, as we've been working through the gospel. John 7, 18. Jesus says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. John 8, 50. Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. John 17, 5. Jesus says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 13, 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You can see from these passages that Jesus is on the pursuit of the glory of God, but not only the glory of God, but he's also on the pursuit of his own glory. And that even God also is pursuing not only his own glory, but also the glory of Jesus Christ, his son. And so Jesus and God are both after the same thing, the glory. And then continuing then in Paul's epistles, 1 Corinthians 10.31, the apostle tells us, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 Similarly, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Another way of saying, give God the glory. And whatever you do, word or deed, not some things, not everything but this, but give God the glory. And whatever you do, give God the glory. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. This is really good. Paul says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored or glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, 
and to die is gain. Then he continues in chapter 3, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Inception, but the whole movie is, on, is about trying to insert an idea in someone's mind, an idea that he thinks comes from his own mind, an idea that will change that person, that will define that person, that will dictate his decisions. And I can't help but think that Paul is one as a person who's possessed by this one idea, and that is the glory of God. How else could somebody say that for him to live is Christ and then to die is gain? How else could somebody say that he has suffered the loss of all things and also count them as garbage? In order that he may gain Christ. Apostle Paul is a man who is possessed by the glory of God. It makes it his aim to live for the glory of God and nothing else. The glory of God was central to the Apostle Paul. The glory of God is central to Jesus Christ. The glory of God is central to all of the Bible because the glory of God is central to God himself. Then notice what is not central to the Scriptures. It is not man's salvation. Now, that's important. That's incredibly important. But that's a subordinate end to another end, and that is the glory of God. Our salvation is intended to make much of God. So when thinking about the creation of all things, right? why is there something rather than nothing? Why did God create anything at all? I mean, God is perfect. God is has this perfect fellowship and love within the Trinity with God, the, with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There wasn't any deficiencies or anything lacking in him, and yet he created all things. It's helpful to think about what does creation communicate to us about God? What does it tell us about God? And it tells us a whole lot. Creation tells us his attributes. It tells us that God is has no beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That in the beginning was this creation because God created, but it doesn't tell us anything about God. That God has no beginning. That God, there was never a time that he never existed. There, was ne there will never be a time where he does cease to exist. Creation tells us that God is infinite, that he had to be there in order to create something out of nothing. And it also tells us that God is powerful. And it also tells us that God is wise. To be able to separate the land from the seas, to separate the night from, from the day, to give us the sun, to give us plants, that he is wise in creating man from the dust of the ground and to breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. Creation tells, also tells that God is a good God, that he created everything that you see before you. Because what's the alternative? If God was evil, right, then, this wouldn't, then this would be a miserable existence for you and I. But the fact that we can wake up each day, that the sun rises each day, 
It also says there is a good God who is in control. Revelation tells us that God is perfectly good. And his creation also tells us that he wants his attributes to be known. Now, we can't mistake that as a, a craving for attention. God is not a, a second-hander, which one author describes like this. Second-handers don't live from the joy that comes through achieving what they value for its own sake. They have one eye on their action and one eye on their audience. We simply don't admire second-handers. We admire people who are secure and composed enough that they don't need to shore up their weaknesses and compensate for their deficiencies by trying to get compliments. God did not create the world in order to try to get your compliments. He wasn't craving for attention. There wasn't some deficiency in his heart that he felt like he needed to create all things in order to fight for your attention, to gain your compliments. That's not it at all. God is a perfect God. There is no deficiencies in him, and yet he created all things, and that communicates his goodness. He is perfect, and we are not, and that makes him worthy to be praised. We praise him because of his glorious attributes. And for God to make much of something else or someone else other than himself would be idolatry on his part because there is no one more perfect than God. So the glory of God is central to all of the Bible because it is central to God. It is the central theme of the Bible, what holds it all together. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Jonathan Edwards says, it is implied that as he is the first efficient cause and fountain from whence all things originate, so he is the last final cause for which they are made. Everything have their beginning and their end in God. Some of you are familiar with the Westminster Confession and one of the questions that it asks, and that is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, what if we were to rephrase that question to make it a little bit more God-centered? Not that it's a bad question, it's a great question and a great answer, but what if it said something like, what is the chief end of God? The answer would be, the chief end of God is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. Because he is God. Because there is no other God like God. There is no other God besides God. So that is why we aim to live for the glory of God, just as the Apostle Paul did, because he is worthy of all the glory. But then what does it mean to give God glory? Or what is the glory of God? Again, Jonathan Edwards defines, is helpful, he defines the glory of God in this way. He says that the glory of God is the emanation of God's fullness. So what does that mean? Emanations can be kind of a big word, perhaps. But that just simply means the display of his fullness, the communication of his fullness, the, the emission of his fullness. And so that is why when that is why the apostle says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
because everything communicates the glory of God. Right? As I stand here, as I look at you, I see the glory of God because each and every one of you was made in the image of God. As we go outside and see the skies, as we see the, the trees and the leaves blowing from the wind, it is, it's displaying the glory of God. Right? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above his handiwork. So everything in all creation, whether we want to see it or not, whether you can see it or not, screams out the glory of God. It's displaying to us the fullness of God. It's telling us things about God. And that is the glory of God. And so when we glorify God, we aim to respond to what he communicates to us about who he is. When we worship him in response to what he's revealed to us in his word, to what's in creation, to what he has done for us through Jesus Christ, that is giving glory to God. Because he is worthy. When a, when a president walks in or a king, people normally bow down or they stand and applause because they recognize that they, that position is an honorable position. Right? It's a position that demands respect and reverence. So when we give glory to God, we don't do so just because of the nature of his position, just because he is in the highest heavens and he is the sovereign ruler of all things, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We do that, yes, but more so because we know who he is, that he is wise, that he is powerful, that he is all-knowing, that he is good, that he is faithful, that he is loving, and that he is the savior. So our aim should be to make much of God, for he is worthy of it. But then how does that concern itself with our well-being? How do these things go together? Well, if we think back to the passages in Exodus, right, God delivering his people from Egypt and God prolonging this process of deliverance in order to display his power so that his name might be great. But then what is the result? Right, that is, it ends with the salvation of his people, with the deliverance of his people. And so God is glorified in the deliverance of his people. He displays his power through these different plagues. Or even in the exile. How is the, how does, what is the connection between man's well-being and the glory of God? Well, God means to rescue his people so that his name might be great. So he rescues them so that he might be famous among the nations. In John chapter 11, Right, there's every suffering in that passage as this illness takes the life of Lazarus, as Martha and Mary lose their dear beloved brother. But it doesn't end that way, does it? Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead. And yes, it was for the display of the glory of God, but how does it end? It ends with Martha and Mary receiving their brother back to life. So certainly the glory of God is concerned with man's well-being. And we see that especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel displays the glory of God. That is, namely, through Jesus being our Savior. And we are saved, and God gets the glory. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, which I think should be the great theme of Christian missions. The apostle says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. 
is not to bring about obedience for the sake of obedience, but to bring about obedience for the sake of the glory of the name of God. So this obedience is for the sake of the name of God. And how is this achieved? Through the proclamation of the gospel. People hear the gospel, the saving power of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for sinners. That they could be rescued from sin and the penalty of the wrath of God by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ that results in a new heart that desires God, that desires to be obedient unto God, not just for the sake of obedience, but for the sake of the name of God, so that his name might be great. So we aim to evangelize and to send out missionaries to proclaim the gospel, not just so that people are saved and receive eternal life, though that is incredibly important, but more importantly, for the glory of God. What the gospel produces in man's heart that inevitably results in the glory of God is that it makes the person's heart attracted to God. It makes their heart desire God. We were made to desire God. Are you desiring God this morning? Do you want more of him? Do you long for more of the abiding presence of Christ in your life? Right, and that can ebb and flow. Sometimes we feel that desire more than others. Sometimes we may not feel it at all. But it doesn't have to remain that way. You were created for this, to desire God God gave you a new heart that is attracted to God, that desires to know more of him. So pursue him all the more. Right? And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, the essential issue is that you don't desire God. Your heart is not attracted to God. And in Romans 3, it tells us that part of the judgment upon man is that man does not seek after God, it says. In other words, man does not desire God. And Romans 1 also tells us that the wrath of God is revealed because man fails to honor and thank God. And so, the Lord is calling to you this morning. He wants you to be a worshiper of God. By believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for your sins that you may receive forgiveness of those sins, that you may receive eternal life, and that your heart can be changed, so that you will desire God, desire to live obediently unto God, not for the sake of obedience, but because you generally desire more of the Lord. That heart change can happen today by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the glory of God is central to the Scriptures because it is central to God. And it is central to this passage as well. That is what Jesus was after. It's not that he didn't care about Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It's not that he didn't care about their suffering. I mean, it tells us that Jesus wept with them. But Jesus also was also after the glory of God. He was intended to communicate something about God through the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and that is that God is powerful, that God is the God of life, that God is the one who can resurrect a dead man back to life. And so, as we think about the glory of God, it's also important, because of the passage, to also think about suffering as well. 
Right? Suffering is one of those painful realities that whether you're a Christian or not, we all experience. So is there a word about suffering and the glory of God? And so last week I concluded last, that message by giving you some points about the purpose of suffering. I don't know, as I mentioned before, that I don't know why you might be particularly suffering in, in some personal way. I can't claim to know why God introduces different kinds of suffering in your life, but I can at least tell you that there is a reason or a purpose behind suffering. And again, the Puritan the- uh, Richard Baxter is helpful. So what I want to do is just reiterate a couple of those points. And yeah, just reiterate some of those points. One of the purposes behind suffering is to keep us from mistaking earth for heaven. Never underestimate, never, never, never underestimate the, the, the lures, the attraction of the world and how quickly it can be to become attracted to those things, become attracted to earthly attachments. Now, don't be quick to answer to, to say to yourself, I don't have any earthly attachments. You may have some, but you may not be aware that you do. Now, there are some attachments that we should have, like attachments to one another, to families, to loved ones. Those are not the kind of attachments I'm talking about. I'm talking about different kinds of attachments, things that keep you grounded in this world, things that might even be good things, like security, peace, Some of those things might be material possessions. Some of those things might be your job. Suffering can be an effective means of separating you from those earthly attachments that you may not be aware that you have. If you ever had like a a tape or a a Band-Aid on your arm, you know how painful it can be to just rip that thing out. So you rip it out as quickly as you can. But it hurts, especially if you have hair on your arm, because it's just pulling at your skin. And sometimes, suffering can function in that same way. It can be painful to separate you from those earthly attachments that you might have, but the Lord is meaning to, is is intending to separate you from those things so that you do not place too much comfort in this world, but instead so that you may have a longing, a greater longing for the treasures of heaven and for the peace and the rest that is coming your way. The Puritan Matthew Henry says, we need our mouths put out of taste for worldly delights. One of the purposes in suffering is to, to change our palate. If our taste buds have become attracted to worldly delights. Another purpose behind suffering is to be drawn near to God. I wish for you and especially for me to to pursue the Lord relentlessly with so much strength, with so much vigor, with so much zeal, all seasons of life. In the good, in the times of peace and tranquility and happiness and gladness, but the truth of the matter is that we don't always pursue the Lord as much as we should. Instead, we wait until we are going through trials to pursue the Lord as hard as we can. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
But sometimes suffering can function as a way to waking you up, to stop relying on yourself so that you can pursue the Lord like you should, so you can rely on Him on your show, so you can stop trusting in your own way, instead trust in Him. And that God wants you to draw near to Him. He wants to be near to you. And that can happen if you continue to trust in yourself. And then lastly, there's a kind of suffering. Right? We all suffer through varying degrees, and there's times when we experience suffering that we can still have some semblance of hope, that we can have some optimism, that we can see some light at the end of the tunnel, but there is a different kind of suffering, a profound suffering, where you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, where all hope has been extinguished. Where there, there is, when you come to the end of yourself and you just feel like that this could not get any better, that this will not get any better. I don't think everybody experiences that kind of suffering. I don't think every Christian is called to that kind of suffering, but surely some people do. Maybe some of you have experienced that kind of suffering today or experiencing that kind of suffering today or have in the past. But if you have never experienced that kind of suffering, I want to prepare you for it. So how, what do you do? How do you respond? What, what do you do in times like that? And what you do is that you trust in truth. You trust in the truth of God's word. The prophet Jeremiah was one who suffered agonizingly because he was proclaiming the word of God, a word that people did not want to hear, and he suffered for it. And he agonized so much that he went back, he thought about his birth and even regretted the day of his birth. Why did I have to be born? He said that in response to the suffering that he was who was going through. Now that's profound suffering to get to that place where you regret the day of your birth. But then he says this in Lamentations 3.21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The theologian Philip Ryken says, although suffering can place a question mark over our existence, it never has the last word. Suffering does not have to have the last word in your life. Trust in the truth of God's word. Trust in Lamentations 3.21. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are made new. Great is the faithfulness of God, the God who made a covenant with you through the blood of Jesus Christ to remain with you, to abide with you through his Holy Spirit is the God who continues to remain with you even those, during those times of profound suffering. He does not mean to let you go, but he means to remain with you. And even if that suffering should endure all the days of your life to the end of your days, it doesn't have the last word because Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Suffering never has the last word. The truth of God's word has the last word. Jesus has the last word. So you need only to trust in his word. Trust in what the word communicates about God. That he is good. That he has never left you. That he does not mean to forsake you. It may not mean that he alleviates all your distress, right? And we pray and we hope that he does. But it does mean that you are not alone, that you can still have some hope that comes not from your feelings, that comes, doesn't come from your heart, 
but it comes through what his word says about who he is. So I pray that we would all be a people that anchor ourselves in the word of God because at the end of the day, this is what matters. This is what points to the glory of God and our lives are, are to reflect the glory of God. And even through suffering, as painful as it is, even when we do not desire to give God any glory for what we're going through, we can trust in his word. And when we do so, we show that God is our greatest treasure and that gives him glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you because you have saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, not because we deserve it, not because of anything in us, but because of your wonderful and abounding grace. And through our salvation in Jesus Christ, you make yourself glorious. So help us to be a people who live for your glory, who respond to who you are according to what we see in all creation, according to what we read in the scriptures, and according to what we see in your son, Jesus Christ. And may you give us the strength that we need to endure the hard times in our lives, that we would remember that he who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins is also the same God who remains with us in times of suffering. We thank you for your abiding presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray.